It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. We are undoubtedly going to get into more, I suppose, serious or poignant or soulful topics as we go through this episode with our wonderful guest, Britt East, who is an inspirational author and wrote this wonderful Amazon bestseller called The Gay Man's Guide to Life. We're going to dig deep into this beautiful man and his supportive, soulful work in the world. But before we do that, Britt, when you connected with us and we linked up to get you here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, the one thing that jumped out at me was you talking about how you live in Seattle with your husband and your, quote, crazy dog. Now, Whitney and I both have dogs that mm, could be labeled as crazy, depending on a person's perception. So let's start. We want to know about your doggo. We want to know about your home life. What kind of dog do you have and how crazy is crazy? You know, I never wanted a dog. Um, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I had dogs my whole life. But, oh, my Lord, this one is just like no other dog I've ever lived with. My husband likes dogs better than people. I mean, my husband just can't be without a dog. and He's really cute. And so when he was whining about wanting a dog, I was just thinking to myself, you know what? It's going to be so much work. And uh, it hasn't been that long since our last dog. And he tends to want the misfit toys and pick the dogs that are really differently abled and special. And man, he just knocked this one out of the park. She is a mega predator. It's like living with a Tyrannosaurus Rex. She is like, I mean, she wants to eat everyone, kill everything. And she's really sweet when she's doing it. It's just, it's still murder. I mean, it's just, you know, you have to watch her all the time. She's like a three-year-old hoodlum. You have to watch her all the time. And it's just, um, yeah, she's crazy. She is crazy. What? I just, first of all, I've never heard someone describe their dog as some sort of hybrid between a Tyrannosaurus Rex and a murderous three-year-old hoodlum. So kudos <laughs> to you on an incredible description. Um, I'm curious, I suppose, a spiritual level, Brit. What do you feel she's here to teach you? <laughs> oh, I mean, clearly patience and letting go of my plans. I'm really focused and driven and logical and linear, and I want to plan everything out meticulously. And I love my little illusions of control. And she just plows through them. She does not care one iota about any plan I have for the day. It's her day. I'm just happy to be passing through her day. It's like almost she's a microcosm of life, right? Because I feel like in many cases, we try and create as human beings a sense of safety and certainty and play in these illusions of being able to somehow predict the future or at least have expectations of outcomes. And it sounds like she's sort of this messenger from life saying, as much as your best laid spreadsheets might try and predict the future, good sir, we're just going to throw a lot of dog sized wrenches in your plans and see how you flow with it. You're absolutely right. You know, I just wanted to live a life of quiet sophistication. And she just, there goes the kitchen table. Or, wow, now she's got several baby rabbits in her mouth. Where did they all come from? (laughs) 
I guess there goes my day. I'm now strangling baby rabbits to, you know, finish the job that she apparently got distracted from. And <laughs> it's oh god, every day, every day. Oh, no, I'm not joking. I mean, she's part pit bull, part German shepherd. It's like every day is a murderous adventure. Oh, you weren't exaggerating. You mean in Washington, where you live, you have some sort of backyard or access to nature where she finds these creatures and, and mutilates them? Yeah, my husband is an amazing gardener. It's like something off the cover of magazines. And so we have about a quarter acre that we live on outside of Seattle. And it's like, you know, it's like Disney. You walk out and it's like if Disney had a B&B, that's what my home life would be like. And I can say that because I have absolutely no part in it. I'm worthless. But our dog is just like the Tasmanian devil back there. And somehow, like, for some reason, the moles and the rabbits and the voles and all the little creatures. I mean, the other day she got in a fight with a band of roving raccoons, like a gang of raccoons. They pretty much had like little satin jackets on it, you know, giving each other gang signals. And she's out there trying to take them on. I just constant vigilance. I was not prepared for this. I thought she would be sitting by the fireplace reading Dickens like any normal dog. I was not prepared for the Tasmanian devil here. Oh my God. This <laughs> is perhaps one of the best openings to one of our episodes yet because just the description you're sharing with us is so entertaining. I'm <laughs> laughing a lot with my microphone off so as not to interrupt you. Uh, yeah, it's something else. And I mean, I clearly I have harmed somebody in a former life and have way too much karma that I have to work through now because I'm paying for it. I'm telling you. Oh, by the way, if you want a dog, I know someone. Well, you know, I've been thinking of making a move to the Pacific Northwest, Britt, so it'd be an easy jump up from Portland to come and take yeah. another dog, although I'm not sure. My dog, Bella, who I rescued, God, three years ago now, she's wonderful with humans, not so great with dogs, although she is great with Whitney's dog, Evie, but that was by proxy of Krafuffle and a skirmish that they had when they first met each other that, unfortunately, Evie was on the losing end of. Oh. Yeah, so we joke that she looks like uh, Frankenstein because <laughs> my dog Bella gave her a few stitches in the face. But they're great oh, now. No. They're no, they're they're now they are fantastic. They see each other and it's like, oh hey, what's up? Good to see you. Butt sniff, great. Let's go on a walk. So I guess it took that initial act of violence for them to be okay with each other because now they're great. <laughs> As a side note, as a side note, Whitney, how do we even transition from here, Whitney? I feel like we could just spend an hour talking about dogs, but that's not necessarily why we have you here, Britt. <laughs> Well, it does kind of tie in because one of the things that Britt said that he was passionate about is getting real. And I feel like we already got pretty real talking <laughs> about this. And we also got to know more about you and your personal life. And I think that's such a big part of this. I know you're very committed to self-discovery and certainly our animals can teach us a lot about that. So there's a lot of thread throughs, I think, here, <laughs> especially because I think that this topic can feel really heavy sometimes, you know, given that we want to talk about intense topics like homophobia and racism and the way that some people feel limited in this world based on who they are, you know, and that's a big thing that we want to explore as much as possible so that everyone feels represented. I think it's interesting in this time because there's a lot of awareness. I feel like just in my lifetime, there have been so many shifts in the way that we accept one another, but we still have a lot to work on. And I don't know how much of that will be 
quote, resolved in my lifetime. I don't know how long the road is going to be. There's a lot of acceptance needed in this world. And it seems to be coming from all these different angles. I'm very passionate about human rights. And recently I was hearing about like just horrific things happening right now with uh, farmers. And this is in at the end of January. And like we've got so much going on in, in terms of division just in the United States with people that have different political views and we have different viewpoints on COVID. And it's like, it's interesting for me because it seems like we're becoming more aware, we're being encouraged to be more accepting. And yet at the same time, there's so many examples of division in the country and in the world. And it's like, I'm curious how if you feel this way, Britt, like there's almost like a Venn diagram or something going on. Like there's a little crossover, there's some progress being made, but then we still have like these two separate sides where like not really coming together yet. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. And part of it is a result of what the absolutely brilliant writer Kimberly Crenshaw described as intersectionality, that so many of us stand at the intersection of multiple identities whether we are maybe, for instance, Black, gay, and trans, we might have a very different experience from a cis, white, gay man, for instance. And so, look, being an American is all about learning how to harness and channel our outrage. We're just inundated with mass media-driven, capitalized dopamine hits. And many of us, if we don't take charge of our anger, I mean, look, People are going to take charge of it for us, and most of them have a profit motive in mind. And we're just swimming in this sea of dopamine hits careening from one hit to the next. And that's why it's so important for us to learn how to resist by cultivating a personal practice of replenishment. What is this replenishment? I love that terminology, by the way. That's a term that I don't hear used. And first of all, I love your vocabulary. And second of all, when we look at what I call my phrase is outrage porn. Yeah. Is exactly. that is that, you know, Facebook in particular right now and so many social platforms that have these incredibly sophisticated AI algorithms that continue to feed us outrage porn because that gets the longest duration of views and the most click-throughs and the most engagement. What do we do when you talk about replenishment, Brit? What is that process for you in your life when perhaps you perceive that you're starting to be sucked in, right? And you start to get emotionally activated. You start to feel yourself feeling reactive towards certain things. Tell us in real time, what's that like for you? And how do you shift from anger, reactionism to a sense of more peaceful replenishment as you're describing? I'm a little bit unique in that because I live in this space as a speaker and an author, and I'm constantly engaging, delving into these waters, I have to take maybe extra care more so than the average person out there. So I have a rigorous personal practice that sustains me. I'm very careful about what I eat and what I drink. I get way more exercise than the average person. I take extra good care of my body. I have creative outlets. I have intellectual stimulating outlets. I have a variety of relationships. So I've consciously cultivated a well-balanced life so that I have built in a level of emotional resilience. And that means when stuff goes awry, which it does on the internet, newsflash, that I am well-equipped to navigate those waters. 
and doesn't come by happenstance, at least not for me. I mean, I was a wreck, a hot mess until I took control over my life. I mean, control is such a weird word, but I took charge of my life and I got to really know myself and got real about what is required to help me thrive and what I have to, the tough choices I have to make as part of that. It wasn't until I went through that rigorous exercise and created this personal practice that I started to have this ability to wade into social media, to engage with people who don't agree with me and not feel threatened or rattled, but to be able to persist with an outward expression of love and generosity. I love that you have this practice that you've crafted. And something that Whitney and I talk about on the podcast is not only from a mental health and emotional wellness side, which I think is so incredibly critical now more so than ever, but also that you are advising other people on how to handle this. Because I think that if people don't have tools to handle the amount of, I suppose, reactionary behavior or inciting behavior, there's so much fake news, there's so much sort of, you know, as you said, media and corporate interests looking to profit off of our rage and our outrage and our reactionary thinking. I love that you have this thing that you've discovered for yourself. In how you advise people, Britt, in your work and your speaking and your coaching, you know, how do you help people devise that for themselves? Because I have to assume that, you know, the particular puzzle pieces that make up your wellness routine, your balancing routine, are obviously going to be different for the individuals you work with. So if someone comes in and they say, Britt, I'm also a hot mess. I feel like a piece of shit. I'm flying off the handle. I can't stand what's happening in the world. What the fuck is going on? Help me. It sounds like it's a cry for help from Jason to Brit. How do you help a person sort of diffuse this sort of addiction to dopamine hit and move from reaction to response and finding more balance in their life? How do you take a person through that process to find that for themselves? Well, you're exactly right when you say that it is an individual process. In fact, I think of it as a personal art, that it's an artful practice that we engage in. And the first piece of that is knowing yourself, just like any artist has to do. You learn what makes you tick through a rigorous personal inquiry into your history. You take charge of your story, who you were, where you've been, what you've experienced, what you've endured. And you, the absolute first step is to recount that with benevolent witness so that you can meet yourself in the eyes of another, that their delight in your presence might feed your soul. And that person can be a mentor, a loved one, a family member, but probably, and you know, pretty much hopefully, a paid professional, because they will have no ulterior motives. They will have training and experience and boundaries and ethics and morals to help guide you through that process and help you be more of yourself than you've ever been just by telling your story. And in that way, your story becomes your first medicine. It's really kind of getting us maybe out of, I suppose, victim consciousness or using our story to feel defeated or, you know, shifting a narrative that actually becomes more empowering then, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, our responses to love were largely given to us by our family, our ancestors, if, you know, if you follow epigenetics, 
our society and culture, but we can learn to transcend those stories. It's just, at least in my case, has been a mindful process of training and learning that then yields an artful practice, as in there's no finish line. It's ongoing. That reminds me of a book that I've talked about here on the podcast and also on our blog. It's a book by an author named James P. Cars that is called Finite and Infinite Games. Hmm. And what you just said, Britt, reminded me of that where you know his position, his theory is that we live in a conditioned world that's so binary with finite games of there's a winner, there's a loser, there's yeah. a success, there's a failure. You either accomplished it or you didn't accomplish it. And it's this conditioning that is passed down through generations of binary thinking. It's one choice or the other, and that's it. Yeah, a zero-sum game. There is a yes. winner and a loser, just like you said, instead of focusing on how we can make the pie larger, for instance. Yeah, and I think that bleeds into this larger conversation. We had a guest on the podcast, Dr. Melissa McDonald, who was talking about gender pronouns and really talking about moving into non-binary ways of looking at the world when most of human society is structured in many binary ways. And I think this bleeds into some of me wanting to hear and us wanting to hear more about your story of our desire to have more understanding of the struggles that you as a gay man have faced in your life and in supporting the GBTQ community. We talk about story and we talk about the particular struggles that you have faced in your life. And I'd like to know, because I suppose it's a good thread through of talking about this binary system of looking at the world. What are these major challenges that you've experienced in your life that have made you the person you are now, Britt? And how have you leveraged those challenges and struggles to support others? Every day, I wake up in a world steeped in straight supremacy. And what that means is that inevitably, like everyone else, throughout the day, I'm going to make a series of uninformed homophobic choices that I have to reckon with. Because in a world steeped in straight supremacy, we all make homophobic choices from time to time, even gay people. And that's where the awareness begins, getting curious and empathetic about the choices you make over the course of the day, and then reviewing maybe where you went astray, where you were incongruent and out of alignment with your core values and beliefs, so that you can then make amends if necessary, apologize, celebrate, whatever the case may be. And that, to me, is how you begin to resist homophobia and bigotry as a gay person is it starts with your own internalized homophobia. And this is where we as a community get it backwards. We so want to start with other people's bigotry, which is very real and very harmful, but it's not the first step. The first step is starting with ourselves so we can learn how to stand tall, take up space and be empowered in our own truth and then go out there and dismantle the institutionalized racist institutions or misogynist institutions or homophobic institutions. But we have to start with that fearless moral inventory and a reckoning of our own behavior. I was just going to say, you're, you're so eloquent, Britt. Like, it's really, really powerful. And I'm just feeling so much gratitude for you sharing because it's giving me so much food for thought already and just... <laughs> Reflecting on these things that I think about often as a cisgendered white woman, you know, it's been an interesting time because, you know, women, of course, had our struggles. I think 
you know, sadly, we live in a world where it's like people are targeted for all different reasons, for their age, for their gender, for their sexuality, for their background, their ethnicity, like on and on. It's like this place where some of us are struggling more than others. And it's just reflecting on it and how we participate as well without even recognizing it, to your point, is really interesting. That was a big eye-opener for me in 2020 when I started diving deeper into racism and started to recognize how that was playing out in my life in ways that I didn't even know because it's so such a big part of our culture and how some of us will love to say, I'm not homophobic and I'm not racist. And we back it up. We're like, you know, there's that cliche thing, which I probably said uh, myself. It's like, oh, well, I'm not homophobic. Like I have plenty of gay friends or I'm not racist. Like I have friends that aren't white. You know, we give these examples. And yet to your point, Sometimes it's so steeped in our behavior and our culture, our habits, like the bubbles that we're living in that we just can't even see where it's showing up for us until it's pointed out. Yeah. You know, my personal philosophy is that there are no homophobic people, only homophobic choices. And what that means is it holds us simultaneously more accountable for our actions and our words, our speech, our choices over the course of the day but also creates space for grace and room for redemption because none of us are so broken that we're beyond the power of redemption, but we're all, we all have to own our own choices. And so that's the balance that helps me stay sane because as a white person, as a cisgender male, these last four years have been so embarrassing at my lack of attunement and intuition and wisdom on issues that have been impacting women for millennia and black people and indigenous people in particular for 400 years. It's embarrassing. And I, you know, like you alluded to having it shoved in our face, thank goodness, is what it took to wake me up to start to stand in my own power as an anti-racist activist, as an anti-misogynist activist, and as well as an anti-homophobia activist. And one last thing I want to put a button on with that point is that in my system of belief, homophobia starts with misogyny. And if we can learn to recognize the way that we have pathologized feminine beings and bodies, that will go a long way towards gay liberation. Wow. I've never heard anyone lay that link out before. And first of all, again, food for thought. It's almost like the little light bulb in my head went, oh, this makes so much sense. I've never heard anyone make that connection. What what I want to go back to really quickly, though, Britt, is when you were talking about taking personal inventory and being self-aware of our own, say, homophobic tendencies or actions or words, I'm very curious if you could please give some examples from your own life of detecting ways that you have observed homophobic behaviors or language or tendencies in your life, how you were able to observe them, and then the steps that you took to, I suppose, not just be aware of them, but make different choices moving forward once you did become aware of them. And I would love some specific examples if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, and it's going to be super embarrassing and really specific. And I'm not sure I've shared any of this before, to be honest, but I'm happy to delve into it. 
we all make homophobic choices, I believe, and there's no end to them because there is no end to our homophobia. But, you know, I'm a pessimist, so take that with a grain of salt. That's just my personal belief. But regarding the specifics that I've wrestled with, I have wrestled with an attraction to men that you might call, that people would generally call masculine. And I know now that masculinity is culturally contrived, that our view of masculinity in the 20th and 21st century is very different. The traits are maybe even opposite of what described a masculine man in like the 18th century or the 17th century. Very different traits. So those traits shift over time. But it starts with curiosity. Hmm, why am I always fantasizing about the same type of guy? I wonder if there's anything in that. I wonder what that says about me. Is there something intrinsically unattractive about quote-unquote feminine guys? Is there something intrinsically unattractive about me? Am I a feminine guy? Is there something that society is laying on me? Maybe I have been saturated in imagery of powerful, straight men, and I found that desirable for obvious reasons because maybe I felt weak and wanted proximity to that power, and maybe that sexualized over time for any number of reasons. And is it immutable? Can I change that? Can I start to broaden my sexual tastes? Can I broaden my fantasies to be more inclusive not just for the sake of a richer fantasy life, but for the sake of a richer spiritual life, for the sake of greater congruence with my morality. Wow. There's so much to unpack, Britt. And first of all, just thank you for sharing so openly and vulnerably. That was really wonderful. It brings up so many interesting points of examining the nature and the mechanics of sexual desire, first of all, and the power dynamics in there, and looking at, as you said, taking a look at ourselves you know, what, one thing that I have observed within myself is, I suppose, Whitney, you could chime in too on your observations on this, but I've always been, I suppose, labeled as a, quote, feminine man, and that I am a cisgendered, straight, mixed-race male. And for pretty much all of my life, since probably junior high school, I've heard some version of, oh, I thought you were gay. And I was like, oh, that's cool, you know? And I got curious about it in the sense that I would ask people like, why did you think I was gay? And they usually it's something around like, oh, well, you're just, your energy felt gay. And I was like, well, what does that mean? It's like, oh, well, you know, you just, you always break out into song and you're into theater <laughs> and, and you, you know, you're very flamboyant, you dress flamboyantly and you have very particular aesthetic tastes. And they label kind of all of these sort of, I don't know if arbitrary is the right word, but it's like, okay, so the music I'm into and what my interests are and how I carry myself and how I dress you assumed I was something. They're like, well, yeah. It was like, and it's not because I was offended by it. I never have felt an offense to that comment. I, it's more of a curiosity of why pretty much my entire adult life people have assumed that about me. And I just think, you know, unpacking sort of the dynamics of what you said, Britt, about feminine and masculine energies is something I want to dig into a little bit with you because I feel like aside from the idea of a gender pronoun, or our sexuality, there's the energetic dynamics in relationship too. So when you talk about masculine energy or feminine energy, what exactly is your perception of that? And what do you mean by that? When I talk about it personally, I'm talking about the cultural contrivances 
um, because personally, I don't believe in it. Personally, I've known too many really strong women to believe that there's anything masculine about muscles or, let's see, self-sufficiency or vibrancy. But that is what the culture tells us masculinity is. And it is, I believe, to a certain degree, purposeful, if not subconscious and sublimated. And what I mean by that is when you are a person who violates gender norms, the white blood cells come out and they are trying to protect the status quo, which means patrimony, the passing down of wealth from men to sons, as supported by the institution of marriage and capitalism. And all of this is tied together in a way that is self-reinforcing. So if I am a woman and I'm strong and I'm brave and I'm tough, then I'm likely to be called a lot of names as well. If I am a man and I'm maybe more emotive and expressive and like the arts, then people are likely to make a lot of negative assumptions. And all of these issues adversely impact my social standing. Also, you don't have to take my word for it. There's all sorts of ways to watch this play out. Just watch what happens to a woman's social standing when you comment on her body publicly, even if you think it, perceive it to be praiseful. Uh, immediately, her social standing diminishes. And so I personally, and I've rarely talked about this because I'm still exploring it, I personally identify more as post-gender or agender because the labels offer me no utility personally. And I see how those labels could be empowering to some people, maybe particularly trans people, as they feel seen and known for the first time. I know that's how it felt when I came out as gay. I loved that label or queer. But today, I've been around a long time. And those labels I have found in my own life, because I have so much privilege working in my life, those labels offer diminishing returns. I don't really need them. I just am who I am and I follow the energy. Now, that's a little bit of a privileged position, but that's just my emotional attunement to them. So when we talk about like masculine expression or, you know, gender orientation, none of it personally resonates with me. So I struggle to talk about it, but I'm actually working on another book that's all about this where I'm wrestling you know, I write the books that I need to read. And so this next book that I'm working on is going to wrestle with love and sexuality and gender as seen through the lens of the queer culture, because I know this is something that society is wrestling with. This is something that I want to get to the bottom of in my own life. And it's so complex and so tough to tease apart the various cultural dynamics that underpin our behavior and our choices and yeah, it's just work that I think needs to be done. Wow. It's again, like very eloquent. I love just listening to you, Britt. Like I could just sit here and, and treat this like you're the only one speaking. And like, <laughs> I, I just feel like there's so much to learn from you and it's really helpful. And I was reflecting on labels because my brain started going down, like how I respond to labels, you know, like when you were saying how proud you feel when you had the the gay label after first coming out, I was reflecting on like, well, for me being a straight woman and like my perceptions of people that are gay and like 
even that word, sometimes there's like a hesitancy to using it because I'm afraid that it's going to be like seen as not the right word. You know, like that's something that I've often felt insecure about is saying the wrong thing and accidentally offending somebody, you know, and it's all a matter of perception. And it also reminds me of race. In one of the books I was reading about racism as I was trying to learn more and become a better ally, like how can I join the conversation in a confident and beneficial way? And I think it was in one of the books that there was a story about how like we will whisper certain words or try to like finesse them, like the word black, you know, like, ooh, growing up, it was like, is it okay to refer to somebody as black? Should we say African-American or is that offensive? Like just like getting lost in that fear of using the wrong terminology, just like the word gay. And then as the LGBTQ like come out and then it's like, am I saying all the letters? Are there more letters? Am I leaving anything out? Am I offending somebody? Like, And even people who have responded to this podcast, which has actually been really helpful, have pointed out like Jason and I not being super inclusive when we talk about gender and how we've been working on being more inclusive with our language. But you really can only be where you're at until you continue learning. And I think that's also an important part of your message, Britt. It's like, we're the result of our society. We're the result of our upbringing, our education, our family history. And it all depends on that. It's not like, we're not always super aware. Like, it's not my intention to not include somebody or to offend somebody. It might just be, those are the words that I know to use right now. Here's the thing, and this is the tough love portion, and I can do this because I'm throwing myself in this pot as well. So we're going to mess it up. We're going to step in cow pies. We're going to put our foot in our mouth. And that is part of standing in our own power is owning that and understanding that when we do it, we can clean it up. We can be redeemed. Our birthday isn't canceled because we use the wrong word. Okay, and so if we slink in the shadows and hide from those conversations, we do much more harm than if we put our foot in our mouth. It is essential that we have those conversations. And at least on speaking on behalf of the queer community, we're not going to make it easy on straight people because y'all ain't made it easy on us. And we're not here to make this road, this homophobic path easy for anybody. The work of eradicating homophobia is straight work, just like it is white work to eradicate systemic racism and male work to eradicate misogyny. And none of it is going to be easy and none of us get a free pass. But hopefully because of that and because we're all in this together, that gives us a mutual license of generosity that we can create space for those who would love us given half a chance. And that we recognize that, like, I might use a word that offends somebody of a different race. They might use a word that offends somebody of a different sexual orientation. And we all have agency to clean up after ourselves and love each other anyway. The awakened heart stands cracked open in wonder at all that it does not know and loves anyway. Wow. I mean, I'm getting chills and and feeling so touched by this conversation because it ties into the inspiration for the show about this might get uncomfortable. And as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking about how many times we avoid getting uncomfortable when really in the discomfort is where we're growing and yeah. having uncomfortable conversations and being feeling okay about making mistakes is something that I'm working on. I was raised 
being terrified of making mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I bet I'm not alone in that. I think our society, especially Jason, I talk a lot about cancel culture. It's like sometimes cancel culture is great. Like we don't, you know, if somebody does something that's harmful to another, like we got to address it. We got to clean this up. We got to fix it. But on the other hand, sometimes we're so quick to cancel people. We don't even give them the chance to improve. We're like, you made a mistake and you're out when really we need to allow people to make mistakes so they can grow. And then that actually makes them a stronger human being. But if we, if we cancel them before they can learn from it and they can grow, then that's actually not helping any of us, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. And this is why so many conversations about race need to be happening among white people. So many conversations about sexual orientation need to be happening among straight people. So you can catch up, we can catch up and find our footing and not place the burden on the minority to educate us or train us. That is not their job. It is our job to get informed. Absolutely. This reminded me of a conversation I allowed myself to get uncomfortable in so the time we're recording, which is end of January, on Clubhouse, a platform that I think is actually a really great place and has a lot of potential for these types of conversations because it's bringing a lot of different people together in an audio conversation, unlike a text-based conversation. So you actually have an opportunity to understand someone a little bit better through their words and their intonation than you do like through text based uh, chat on social media. And I saw this room that pointed out a major source of ignorance within myself, which is right now there's some horrible things happening in India to farmers. And I saw this room. I was like, what is this about? And I went in and it was a lot of Indian people. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm like this ignorant white woman here And then I recognized, like, I should be in this room. I wish there were more people in this room. And I just decided to openly admit my ignorance. And they embraced it. And they wanted to educate me and help me learn how to become a better ally on this subject matter. And it was something that I I could have, like, walked away from, as, as many of us feel like we should do. Like, I don't know what to add to this conversation, or I'm not knowledgeable enough to participate, so I'm just going to let the experts handle it. But sometimes by admitting our ignorance, that's where we can actually start to change. And, you know, for me, it's like, okay, I need to learn to feel more comfortable in those uncomfortable moments, which sounds counterintuitive, but uh, it's a process. There is an art to it. We're going to make mistakes. And that's part of standing in our power and taking ownership is owning our mistakes and the fact that we're going to make mistakes and we're going to choose love anyway. We're going to get egg on our face and be embarrassed, and that might be splashed on social media, but it's better to love anyway. The only thing more painful than loving is not loving. I'm curious how you feel about cancel culture. Like, Do you feel it's beneficial at times? Is it getting in our way? Like, What is your overall perspective? When somebody, you know, to be more specific, someone speaks out and maybe says something homophobic, for example... Should they be canceled or should they be handled in a different way that allows them to become educated? And how do you feel when like somebody is canceled and then they do the now cliche public apology? How does that resonate with you? And what are some examples of where it's gone well versus not so well? So 
I hate cancel culture. I think it's never okay, but I love accountability. I have a fetish for accountability. And, you know, the thing is that um, nothing we say can ever be unsaid. Nothing we do can ever be undone. That's why it's all so sacred. That's why words and actions are heavy. They have consequence. So we as a society are trying to figure out where our deal breakers are and our deal makers. And too often we have placed our deal makers on black bodies or queer bodies or feminine bodies. For instance, as white people want, we seek black approval or we want to be seen as expressing or having certain virtues. And so we put the burden on others to attend to our needs when it's really, they just need the space to live their own lives. Same for queer people, same for women, same for everybody who has experienced oppression. They just want the space. We just want the space to live our own lives. So now with regard to public apologies in the U.S., we have a culture of making half-hearted apologies in a public space and expecting total forgiveness and redemption. And that's just not how apologizing works. I guess I think of forgiveness as a really simple spiritual practice. We place a lot of, you know, we tend to hold it in high esteem because none of us want to practice it. And so we pretend it's complicated. But the truth is kindergartners forgive. So we as adults can friggin' learn how to do it. If some five-year-old can do it, who are we kidding? This is not hard. There's a simple formula for making an effective apology, making amends, um, setting intentions to do better in the future. And then it's incumbent upon us to create the space, the generosity for those who would love us. That generosity might make a family of us if we would let it. One thing I want to loop back to, Britt, in terms of the psychology of labeling. I think about this often in the sense of when we're talking about categorizing people, the underlying psychological elements of needing to put names to things, you're straight, you're gay, you're black, you're white, you know, the sort of binary thinking we talked about a few moments ago. And what I feel is is sort of the oppressive mindset of one thing or the other, and you're, you're just going to pick one or the other thing, and that's it. And, you know, I wonder your perspective on the role of language and labeling in sort of the, the pantheon of human psychology, is it that at the root, we label things so that we can feel safe and in control? That if I have a name for something and I have a framework of how I understand that thing to be, then I will feel safe and protected and in control because I can label it. And furthermore, that if a human being exists in a framework of self-expression, sexuality, gender, that is outside of labeling, that there's no word for it, that people feel threatened and fearful because they don't have a way to compartmentalize and control this person who exists outside of a framework. And I'm curious the intersection of, of language and labeling, and if it's useful for us to get into the psychological dynamics behind our incessant need to label everything, are labels useful? Or would it perhaps be a more equitable, loving world if we were to dispose of them altogether, if that's even possible? Yeah, I think you said it beautifully. I think all of those things are true. I think labels get to one of the myriad paradoxes that underlie our psychological lives. So for me, labels have diminishing returns over time. 
as I cultivate more resilience and agency. That's not going to be true for everybody because all of our circumstances are different. I'm speaking based on my lived experience. Labels are thrilling as I embrace them. And then the longer I've come to embrace them, the more I stand in my own power, the less I need them. I think there is something in the equation around knowledge gives us the illusion of power and labels. You know, there's no knowledge without language and labels are part of that language. They're thrilling at first. They're necessary. But I think what I encourage people to view them as pragmatic choices rather than idealistic choices. So for instance, if you think of a label just as a name tag, hi, my name is Brit. I can write whatever I want to on that name tag and nobody is going to debate it. So for instance, if I identify as gay, nobody's gayer than anybody else. Nobody's less gay or more gay. I mean, that might be common vernacular as we joke around and use kind of inadvertent homophobic slurs. But really, when you think about it, gay is a cultural word. And so you're either part of the culture or you're not. And that's something you opt into of your own volition. One aspect that makes this more complicated is that we don't confer or set down privilege ourselves. Society does that to us. And then as part of that, society applies labels to us. And I think this is one one challenge that many people who stand at the intersections of a variety of labels might experience. That's not me, but I have friends, I have loved ones who share with me, who tell me that because of their pansexuality or their bisexuality, they stand at these intersections and people want to label them as one thing or another for the very dynamic that you described. And so when they foist that label on the person, they also foist the associated privilege on them. So if you are somebody that is maybe of multiple races, but for some reason society labels you as black, then you get all the privileges or lack of privileges associated with that, regardless of how you identify. So as a white person, I cannot say I'm just going to set down my privilege of whiteness because I did not create the lie of whiteness and that follows me wherever I go. All I can do is use that privilege to lift everyone up around me and dismantle the systems of racism. So these labels, the ones I choose to identify myself in one sense are meaningless because society has its own rules and we're all swimming in this cauldron together. But in another way, they can be very empowering if I think of them pragmatically because I can self-associate with others that have similar life experiences and we can learn from one another. For instance, in the queer community, there is no system of transmitted knowledge. There is no rites of passage. There are no initiations or traditions or ceremonies other than the ones we have created ourselves. We all, well, not all, but most of us, the overwhelming majority of us are born into straight households. But the problem is even the most well-meaning parents have no idea how to raise their kids to be culturally gay. So we have to find others who fit our label pragmatically so we can receive their wisdom. I feel like this idea of culture you brought up, Britt, is really interesting because when I have observed really close people in my life who have identified as bisexual, because you brought that up, I've seen interesting dynamics through the lens of their life experience play out in, how do I say this, support and inclusivity and cultural acceptance 
But then depending on how a person chooses to label themselves, that community has shifted in some regard into a systematic form of oppression from within. I'll give you a real example. And she's given me permission to talk about this. So my partner, Laura, when we first started dating, she was conveying to me that a lot of her gay friends were really angry with her that she started to date me. Because they said, we thought you were only dating women now, and we thought you were one of us, and how could you go and start dating a man again, and just who are you? We don't even know you anymore. It was like this community she had been, thought she had been embraced and accepted by for so many years, then went on to say to her, like, this is outrageous. Like, how could you go back to dating men after so long? We thought you were with us. Aren't you one of us? And it was very interesting to see the emotional toll that took on her. And also the interdynamics of a community here in Los Angeles that she had felt embraced by and then suddenly attacked by. It was really fascinating to just support her and hold space for her as she was going through that when we first started dating. This is a really complicated issue. And there are a lot of dynamics at play. Biphobia, bi erasure, and then extending that into the pan space as well is real. And people get it from all sides. So from the queer community, many of us long envied those people who could pass as straight for obvious reasons. They were faced less you know, chance of physical threats, less risk of um, having employment issues, etc. Not necessarily realizing that there are no easy roads in life and those people who can quote unquote pass as straight have their own burdens to bear that maybe we're privileged to not bear. I say we because I can't pass a straight. So my lived experience is from the former, not the latter. Another dynamic at play is many of us, especially in the um, late 20th century, when we came out, we first came out as bisexual as a way to soften the blow and test the waters. And so because of that, some of us think there's no true bisexual people in the world. Another dynamic at play is because of um, misogyny, when women come out as bisexual, it's a highly prized trait because um, straight men think it's cool that they can be their playthings, as opposed to seeing them as fully realized, complex individuals. And then when men uh, come out as bisexual, they experience the opposite because it's purely about having sex with another man, which violates gender norms in the patriarchal systems of marriage and inheritance. So there's a lot that goes on. Oh, the other dynamic that I almost forgot is that some queer people assume that bi or pan people can code switch. They can pretend they're straight um, pragmatically in a given moment to their advantage and then come back into the queer community when they want to engage with that side of themselves. And so that kind of misunderstanding also contributes to biphobia and bi erasure. And so, I mean, we could go on and on, but people who identify as bi experience so much prejudice from all sides because of a lack of understanding, not to mention the fact that people don't understand what bisexuality even is. They think that if, you know, that if you're bisexual, you want to have sex with both sexes at all times, or that you're 50-50, want to have sex with men 50% of the time and women 50% of the time, not creating the space that's due these complex individuals. So when it comes to biphobia and biracial, there's a lot of historical trends and of, uh, cultural dynamics at play. And that's one of the, back to your, one of your very first questions today, that's why I forgot to mention at the top of the program, that's why one of the first things I recommend queer people do is learn our history. 
because there are specific reasons why we act the way that we do that are really easily identifiable and will tremendously help us generate more self-empathy and freedom and love ourselves more and learn to stand in our own power more once we understand our long lineage. It's beautiful, Brett. I just feel much like Whitney exemplified whenever you delve into answers, I feel just so sucked into. <laughs> no, no, truly, you have such a wonderful way of emoting and using language to describe these concepts in a way that's cracking me open and allowing me to reflect in different ways. Mm. You know, it's one thing that that was a really uncomfortable thing for me to acknowledge last year, and that I'm still sitting with, is the ways that, again, as a cisgendered straight, a white appearing male, that I would celebrate different communities and cultures. For instance, if you look at my record collection or the music that I grew up with, with so many black soul and Motown and funk artists and, and sort of the core music that inspired me to make music years ago as a child, that I would look at certain queer artists that had inspired me to do what I did as a singer and performer and musician that it was, how do I even describe this? It was sort of like this very faint homage to saying, I'll buy your records, I'll come to your theater shows, I'll read your books, I'll like love you and support you. But then when it came to like the nitty gritty of learning how to be a good ally and really try and understand as best I can the oppression, the tyranny, the pain, the systemic structures that have caused you pain, that I haven't been willing to go to those areas, right? It's like, mm. I'll support your art, your creativity, mm -hmm. your culture. I'll even co-op those in my life as an artist because they've inspired me so much. Mm. But your pain, your suffering, your struggle, holy shit. When I realized that, I was like, oh, fuck me. Like, I've just been, I haven't been willing to go to those places with you and understand. And when I acknowledged that for myself, it was like, okay. This is a time for me to get uncomfortable and acknowledge I haven't done that and that I can do a much better job at asking you about your history, your struggle, your pain, and what can I do as a human being to support you in that because I love you and believe in you. And it's not just enough for me to support your art and end it there. Yeah, absolutely. It's so humbling. And we have all had those moments and will likely continue to have them over the course of our lives if we maintain that curiosity. And that's why this road is not an easy one and why most people don't choose to take it. You know, there's a famous saying, I don't know who said it, but a famous Black American saying about, you know, white American loves our rhythm, but not our blues, referring to rhythm and blues music, of course, and encapsulating all that you just said that we may truly love the art, but we don't necessarily take time to love the people behind the art, which is very humbling. And, and we all do it and we have all done it. When was the last time we as men marched with women in solidarity for an issue that did not impact us? I bet a lot of us would say never. You know, when was the last time that we marched or protested or you know, joined with black people in a way that did not center ourselves as white people? Many of us would likely say never, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. You know, I think art can be such an important entry point into these cultures that we should not diminish its impact or its beauty. And I think engaging with minority-driven art is a, the logical consequence of seeing them as fully realized human beings, that we don't attempt to be colorblind. 
we attempt to see all the colors and cherish the diversity because diversity always makes us stronger. It is always right. It is always good. And, you know, I think if we stop at the art, certainly if we lack the curiosity to delve deeper, then that's kind of a childlike response. But as we mature and ripen, our souls will be more tuned to the larger humanity, more tuned to the structural systems at play, and really our only chance of togetherness if we start to ask ourselves who's behind the microphone, to use your example of music, or who's behind the canvas thinking of a painter. Yes, we might be engaging with their art, which is wonderful because many people don't. Many people explicitly avoid that art. How many straight people would honestly sit through a queer movie? I mean, very few. And that's just data. There's lots of data about that. How many straight people would read a queer book? Very few. And so it's a beautiful act to wade into that space with a genuine open heart and curiosity. But I hope it doesn't end there because that would also be the end of our togetherness. We need more generosity of spirit to see the person behind the art and think of all that led them to that moment to create the art such that we might experience it. I want to know, Britt, who are some of the artists that either you are feeling really into right now, really moved by? or historically in the formation of you as a being, who are some of the artists that we may not know about that you would say, this is a human being that has a message that's very important, it's very soulful, and also that their art could maybe crack our hearts open a little bit wider. Who are some people that immediately come to mind that you'd like to share with us? Well, if you want to have your delicate sensibilities uh, challenged, I would encourage you to read the fiction of Garth Greenwell, who is probably my favorite queer writer. Um, he is a contemporary writer, and his latest novel is called Cleanness. And it's going to be very challenging for you if you read it. It was written for queer audiences in mind, but it will give you a glimpse into our culture, and you will never look at your queer friends the same way again. Because you will understand that we're not just your wacky next door neighbors. We were not created to add local color to your lives. We are full, complex individuals. But for me personally, I have taken so much pleasure and solace and inspiration from the Black American community. And certainly there have been queer intersections. James Baldwin at the top of the list, Bayard Rustin, and, you know, lately, Ijima Oluo. Uh, is a local Seattle writer who writes on race. But as queer people, we owe everything that we have, which, by the way, is the largest social change in ever recorded in human history. There's never been anything like that we're, we're experiencing in terms of personal freedom and liberation, and we owe it all to people of color, specifically Black people. If you think about the Supreme Court decision in 2020 regarding Title IX and the extension of that, the word sex, to include queer people, that we have redress if and when we are fired from employment simply because of our sexual orientation, that stems specifically from the 1964 Civil Rights Act. This is why it's critical we learn our history, and it's a shared history of civil rights. There were queer people in the Black power movement, in the Black civil rights movement. There were plenty of queer people, Angela Davis coming to the top of mind, including Bayard Rustin. And so aside from the moral issues, there are pragmatic reasons that we owe our gratitude, if not our allegiance. 
And then my favorite, probably my favorite novelist is Toni Morrison, who died, I believe it was last year. And so, you know, for whatever reason, and maybe it's because I grew up in the South and I grew up, a, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to a school that was white minority. And so I did not have the white sheepishness that a lot of people do when they grow up in cloistered white America. I was exposed to this, frankly, at an early age, so I can't claim any sort of uh, high-mindedness about it. It was assigned to me as a child. And so I learned to love it through thanks to the teachers and whoever set up the educational structures where I happened to grow up. Um, we were reading Zora Neale Hurston in junior high. So I was, you know, very lucky, fortunate. So that is the community I turn to when I need replenishment. In addition to, of course, the queer community, but the black community is really responsible for forming and shaping my voice. Thank you so much for sharing that with us because I can't wait to check these out. And for the listener, we'll put a link to all of those resources. So it's really easy for you to go look at them as well. That'll be on our website in the show notes. There's a transcript of this episode, everything. We want to make it really easy for you to find the information so that you can continue learning about this. And that's at our website, wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you click on the podcast section, and find this episode, it'll all be listed there for you. And Brett, I was like going to start writing all of this down, but there's so much and so much that I've never heard of before. And I'm, I'm just <laughs> immensely grateful for that because it's pointing out a lot of my ignorance around this subject matter. And oh, there's just so much coming to mind. I guess another question that I had for you that has felt uncomfortable, but important to work through is relating to our podcast. You know, I remembered when we first started this show, Jason and I were working out our plan, what we were going to talk about, and then what guests we would have on here. And we started with people that we knew. So it was, you know, going through any of our contacts who might say yes to us as new podcasters. And then after, there was a certain point, it might have been thanks to the Black Lives movement that was happening and growing so much last summer in 2020. I remember stepping back and recognizing, oh my gosh, the great majority of people, if not all of them, most of them, I should say, actually, off the top of my head, I thought of a few exceptions, but most of them were white people. And then we started to recognize in our world, which has been so much, you know, within the wellness world, like it's a lot of white people and a lot of cisgendered people. And, and then it was like this almost horrific realization of how we weren't really doing a great job representing people. And then this other thing came up for me, Britt, that I'm curious to hear from you is I didn't know how to like represent more people without, because I had like this fear that they would feel exploited if we invited them on our show. Like I was afraid that they would recognize that they were in the minority of non-white cisgendered people. And then like, I just was terrified of people feeling like we were taking advantage of them because they represented someone that hadn't been on our show before, if that makes sense. And I've been really contemplating how to move forward. Like, should I acknowledge that? Like, be upfront? Like, we want to include more voices? Or does that make people feel like, to your point, that they're that unique individual versus just like anybody else, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, there's no easy answers. And it's going to be uncomfortable and painful and embarrassing. And it's kind of supposed to be because the harm is so legion. There's just no reason that we could or should make things easy and cozy for the, for lack of a better word, oppressors. So the spirit that I use, because I'm at the confluence of lots of different privilege, the spirits that I use is I try to engage people directly for their expertise in a way that centers and amplifies their voice. And in some industries, a norm might be payment. For too long, whether it's Black brilliance or queer excellence, it has been uncompensated or at least, comp- and you know, as a woman, I don't have to tell you this, you know, compensated at levels that are just ridiculously, patently, systemically unfair. And so if there's an industry norm around compensation, then that's a moral and ethical issue to ensure that guests as part of not engaging in tokenism are compensated at equivalent rates to their white male cis counterparts. If it's a world that is a norm is not compensated, like typically the podcast world, then I think it's more about giving folks a platform where they can shine and creating a framework for conversation that meets them where they are, allows them to display all of who they are, and then centers their voice rather than the voice of the presenters. So if you present, like, for instance, you know, speaking personally, the way that you have framed this conversation has not been one about straight America. And so, you know, I feel seen and heard and known in this conversation because you have created enough space for all of me. And if you carry that energy, I think, I suspect for any person, regardless of their various identities, they're likely to feel the same. But I guarantee you, it will always be uncomfortable because racism is uncomfortable, because homophobia and misogyny is uncomfortable. It's like, it should be uncomfortable, (laughs) you know? And so all we can do is stand in our power, acknowledge it, like you said, and then when we put our foot in our mouths, own up to it. Yeah. And that also reminds me of media representation. You know, of course, I got the podcast is a form of media as well. But like, sometimes I notice too much when it feels like someone is, is trying to make media more inclusive. And I have this moment of like, are they bringing this person into this project, whether it's an entertainment like TV show or, or a movie, or is it an article? Are they being interviewed? Are they brought into an event? Like, are they being brought in as like the token person to show that they're inclusive And you started to see a lot of this happening in 2020. And I remember feeling a bit conflicted, you know, just from my personal experience, like my personal viewpoint, I felt like, wow, this is so great. We need to have more people represented. But I just kept wondering, like, how do they feel? Like, are they feeling like they're that token person to represent some community or something beyond that the white cisgendered standard? Yeah. And you might think about how you might feel as a woman going through that process. As a queer person, I feel conflicted. I feel ambivalent. Like on the one hand, I'm grateful to have a a platform to spread my message and share my work. But on the other hand, if I'm consistently getting booked during Gay Pride Month, 
I'm a little suspicious. Yeah. And I'm a little suspicious of the platform itself. So if you surround yourself with diversity over the course of the year, then you don't have to worry about that. Now, the reality is the challenge is there's so many identities out there being discriminated against that we have to make tough choices. There aren't enough hours in the day to attend to everybody. And that's part of the reason why it's going to take all of us working together. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that the change feels maybe unbalanced at a certain point temporarily. You know, one thing, as I mentioned, that I'm hoping will change a lot is the wellness world, given that, you know, Jason and I get uh, podcast inquiries from a majority of young white women who want to come on this show. And then I'm having like the other end of the spectrum of like rejecting them temporarily because I'm like, we have too many white women on this show. And I want to have a diverse, inclusive conversation with people. And so it's like, I'm finding myself, yeah, rejecting somebody who's just like me for that interesting reason. And that's been a weird conflict for me emotionally, too. Yeah, absolutely. I I hear you. And there are no easy answers. I mean, sometimes these challenges and mysteries and struggles in life are meant to be lived rather than answered. There's no magic wand that's going to make that go away. And that means there's lots of honor in your struggle. So don't dismiss the beauty um, of wringing your hands. That's an act of courage and empathy because you're seeing all sides of the equation. If it were easy, then that would be suspicious. Prejudice is not easy. So dismantling prejudice won't be easy either. And you're going to have to make really tough choices and you're never going to appease everyone. And so it's going to take coming up with a philosophy and an approach of inclusion, which gets back to the very first part of the interview where we said the main thing we have to do at the start of the process is to know ourselves and then to go be that person and shine our light as bright as we can through the world, be most of who we truly are. That's really our greatest gift, whether that means coming out, you know, not just our sexual orientation, but coming out on any number of topics so that we can give our gift, which is our self and our story to the world. Mm, so well said. So well said, Britt. I <laughs> I laugh because I just feel like sometimes sometimes I feel when I'm opening my heart more to not just acknowledge but as an empath to feel not directly because I don't have a direct experience of the subjugation of what people differently than myself are going through but one thing I wanted to ask you about is sometimes I feel a sense of empathy from observing and acknowledging another person's pain and suffering and struggle, that I sometimes feel so overwhelmed by the totality of the suffering on the planet from not only the oppression of the systemic structures that are everything we've talked about in this episode, but you know, then I go to like sort of the environmental catastrophe and, and you know what's happening in, in factory farming and what's happening with class warfare. And I think sometimes as as an activist or someone who desires to be a, a more effective activist, a more empathetic activist, that I feel stultified at times by the totality of the suffering that I observe and feel in the world. And I'm so curious for you in your practice of, you know, as you open your heart and you feel these things, to not feel halted by the suffering, but use it as fuel 
to continue to support and be an ally and be an activist. And sometimes I feel stuck in that space. Does that make sense? Where, where the suffering is stultifying, that I feel so deep in it from feeling and observing other people's pain that I'm not sure what the fuck to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. That means you care and you care deeply. And that's a beautiful space to be in, a beautiful thing to work with and shines the light again on why it is critical, essential even, that we cultivate our personal practices of replenishment and resilience so that we can rise to the occasion because we are all essential. Queer people are essential. Straight people are essential. Black people are essential. White people, we are all essential. We all must rise to this occasion. Now, personally, what I struggle with, I've always approached life like a little samurai, like a warrior. And that has served me really well in some aspects and poorly in other aspects. And so what I wrestle with is how do I set down my sword and take off my armor? I think a lot of people who have experienced bigotry and bias might have a similar feeling that sometimes it's hard to remember how just to let go and have a chuckle and enjoy the sweetness of life and not take everything so damn seriously because the stakes are truly high. You know, the events of the last four years can feel horrifying, especially if you're a white person who has kind of lived in a la-la land for the bulk of our lives and haven't been attuned to the systemic suffering of others. So if you try and swallow the whale whole, well, it's just impossible. And so, of course, you're going to feel defeated and tired. And so it's important to have a practice that not only replenishes you and fortifies you and creates that resilience, but also gives you a plan and approach to how you can work with your suffering, the suffering of the world today to improve your little portion, your little corner of the world. No single person, no single one of us can take over something as broad as, for instance, saying eradicating systemic loneliness or eradicating, you know, poverty-induced hunger. That's too large for any one of us. But we can take that inspiration, and with our personal artful practice, we can come up with an approach to address it in our little slice of heaven, our little community, in a way that gives us space to live a well-balanced life, and thus be in the game longer anyway. If you consume yourself with it, you're going to burn out and be of no use to anyone. And so it gets back to that well-balanced life and figuring out, like Whitney was saying, making really tough, gut-wrenching choices and leaning into that pain and fully experiencing the anguish as you do it to empower as many people as you can to embody as many of your values as you can muster at any given moment of the day. I think that's such incredibly important advice, Britt, in the sense that I've been observing my reticence to feel joyfulness amidst my observation of how many challenges and struggles and systems that need to be dismantled in the world is that I sometimes sense that my I'm not laughing as much. I'm not feeling as joyful. It's like, <laughs> you, you know, you take as cliche as it is, like you take the red pill and you start awakening and, you know, you're asking life to show you what's real and you're asking life to awaken you to the sufferings of the planet. You know, almost like um, the one example that comes to mind is sort of the origin story of the Buddha. You know, he leaves the confines of his temple and 
his castle as this um, one of the the ruling class and starts to walk and see poverty and sickness and starvation and the things that he had never been exposed to. And using that sort of story of the Buddha as, as maybe a parable, it's like, if you're a human being is, who's committed to seeing the truth and the reality of people's experience who are different than you outside of the box you've been in your entire life. I think for me, one of the big challenges, and I'm glad you spoke to it the way you did, was that I tend to lose my joy sometimes. And I tend to feel the suffering so deeply as an empathic person that it's like, why should I be joyful when so many people are suffering? But your point of maintaining balance and replenishing and that laughter and joyfulness can be a tool for us as activists to keep the momentum and the energy moving forward so we can serve for a longer period of time. It's like, I'm sort of deconstructing this mentality I've adopted at different points of like, yeah, but I need to feel the depth of your suffering so I can be a better ally. So I need to suffer too. (laughs) Yeah, it's really beautifully put. You know, the paradox is the more that we laugh, the more we're going to attract people over to the side of togetherness anyway. Recently, like in the last four years, since it's really been exposed in our social media, kind of dualistic cultures have been so fraught. When was the last time any of us converted anybody to anything through debate or argument? I think that laughter is actually not only going to replenish us, but as you were talking, I was thinking that's actually also the way we're going to attract more togetherness is through our joy and our laughter rather than our incisive arguments. Well, on that note, Britt, I am very, very excited to dig deeper into not only your wonderful book, A Gay Man's Guide to Life, Get Real, Stand Tall, and Take Your Place. It's absolutely gorgeous, and you were so kind enough to gift us with a digital copy that I'm excited to crack into more of your your work and your perspectives. And of course, you have so many incredible blog posts. I was reading those on your website. And for you, dear listener... We want you to dig into Britt's soulful, heart-based work on his website. It's BrittEast.com. We're going to link to his book, to all of his resources, and all of the things that we mentioned during this episode. Uh, You can access those show notes at our website, which is WellEvator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, because we really encourage you to educate yourself, to expand yourself, to crack your heart open wider as we are doing through all of the the pain and the joyfulness and the laughter, which again, Britt, thank you for encouraging us to cultivate balance as, as we're learning more, as we're trying to be better activists, as we're trying to increase our empathy and understanding and shift this world into a deeper sense of love and acceptance and respect and acknowledgement amongst all of the human family. I think your message is just so nourishing and so timely. And I love that you're a loving person, but you're also a no bullshit person. So thank you for showing us. No, honestly, thank you for showing us that you can be just like cut to the heart of the matter, be no bullshit, but also be radically loving at the same time. Thank you for being that example. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.